So we are in the book of Ephesians. For those of you who are new or are um, just transitioning in this morning, we are in the middle of a book called Ephesians in the New Testament, and I'm going to be looking at a particular set of verses set within a larger context of verses, and I've asked AJ to read that larger context of verses for us, which is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. So AJ, come on up here. You don't need this, right? You got your own? Oh, okay. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. Let's read it together. It says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each of us was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Thanks, AJ. I want to draw your attention again to verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How do we do that? How do we stay unified in learning to grow together in the bond of peace? Well, we've been highlighting different ways, different avenues through small groups that you can do that this fall. Through regular small groups, maybe we meet weekly or bi-weekly. Freedom Session, which is starting up this Tuesday night, where you can learn to follow Jesus out of emotional, spiritual, psychological captivity into new life in him, prayer groups that meet on on Monday night, three-to-one groups, men's retreat that's coming up. These are all opportunities for us to grow and deepen relationships. So I've been, um, this will be the second sign-up sheet that's been sent around this morning. And this is just a sign-up for more information on being a part of one of those groups. Uh, I'm doing this because I know not everyone comes every other Sunday uh, or even every week. And so I just want to make sure that if you're here and you want to get connected, this is a way to say, I'm interested in maybe being a part of a small group. It's not a commitment. It's just to say, would someone follow up with me and just give me some more information? So I'm going to pass that around and just make sure that gets around to everyone. So the big picture of what we're looking at in Ephesians 4 is that in verses 1 to 6, Paul is stressing unity. 
in a context where it would have been very easy to say there's a new church and it's, you know, just for everyone's sake, let's just split the thing and let's just have two churches, one for Gentile Christians and one for Jewish Christians because the background is, the starting places of each are just so divergent, it's going to be such a mess to try and bring them together. Let's not bother with that. Let's just have kind of two streams of the church. Paul says, no, that's not been God's plan. In the previous chapter, he says, his plan has been to make a new family, a new man, where Jew and Gentile in him have a new destiny. And then in verses 11 to 16, Paul says the unity, and we'll get to this, the unity is actually secured as different gifts are used to build up and strengthen the body. So there are these dual themes, kind of part A is unity, and part B is how that unity is maintained and strengthened through a diversity of gifts and a diversity of expressions. But then in between these very clear and obvious sections is sort of a strange interruption. At least that's how it's going to read and feel to most of us. If you read through verses 7 to 10, this is what it says in the NIV. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to men. So Paul's quoting from the Old Testament there. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So this, these verses serve as kind of a bridge between the theme of unity and then getting into the gifts and the diversity and the strengthening of this unity and ministry through these diverse gifts. Now, if you've memorized the Old Testament, you know what Paul is quoting from right away. If you're one of those people who are still working on that process, you're going to have to look in your Bible, and hopefully it has a little footnote of some kind around that quote, and you can go down, and you will find out that Paul lifted that line from Psalm 68, verse 18. This is Psalm 68, verse 18. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people. Here is a Bible reading pro tip. Whenever a Old Testament verse is quoted in the New Testament, don't simply just look at the reference and say, oh, Psalm 68, 18, okay, whatever. Go back and read the larger context of the entire quote. Here's why. New Testament writers never quote from the Old Testament simply to lift that particular idea from that passage into the current conversation. They don't use the Old Testament like a proof text the way we might. They're doing something way more sophisticated and complex and interesting. Now, what they're doing, when an Old Testament verse is cited, and, and Jewish readers and hearers would know this. This is a very common way of Jewish uh, way of teaching and the way of using and going into Scripture. When you invoke a particular verse into a conversation, da -da 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 -da, oh, by the way, it says this in Psalm 68. What you're doing is you're trying to import, you're trying to pull in all of the themes and motifs and imagery of the entire work that you're pulling in, but you're just referencing it in one line. Because for a Jewish audience who would have memorized the Old Testament, 
in almost all of its fullness, likely by the age of 10 to 14, depending on the region, when someone says, quotes verse 18, the whole psalm comes to your mind, and you kind of do a scan in your head. Oh yeah, it's a trigger, it's a doorway. It's not meant to be the answer, it's a doorway into a larger conversation. And so what is happening in Ephesus, at least for Paul's Jewish readers, is Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, after talking about unity, and before he talks about gifts of the Spirit and diversity, and he pulls in a line, but what he's really trying to do, and what he intends to happen, is for us to go back to Psalm 68 and to say, okay, there's more than just verse 18 is happening, what's going on here? And then we open to Psalm 68 and we begin to read it And then we allow the major thrust of Psalm 68 to inform what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. Now, it's pretty clear Jewish believers would not have been accustomed to this practice. They wouldn't have been able to practice it because of their lack of background in the Old Testament. But Jewish Christians would have. And so they know when you quote a line of scriptures, you want the entire passage to come to mind and to inform the current lesson. So I want to follow that process because it's going to show you, first of all, how to read any text where the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, but it will also help you to see how this process makes sense of this kind of strange interruption here in Ephesians, but not just helps to make sense of it, but fills it out with new meaning and new power. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Psalm 68. I'm not going to read through the entirety of Psalm 68. Kind of the pertinent verses are, I'm going to put on, uh, up on the screen. But I want to read through some key parts that there's no doubt Paul wants to invoke into this conversation that he's having about unity in the church. So big picture, Cole's notes, Psalm 68 is a psalm that celebrates God's decisive victory over his enemies and is leading captives into freedom. So that's, it's a fairly long psalm, but that is, the made, that is the theme. God, when God comes to rule and to reign, and when God is victorious, he utterly destroys his enemies, and he, um, and he rescues and redeems his people. Verses one to four of Psalm 68 say, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him, May you blow them away like smoke, as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. God, rise up, scatter your foes. How might the idea and the call for God to rise up be received by people who are new Christians? What might they might think of when they think of God arising? Resurrection. Jesus' resurrection already. Okay, God arising. Yeah, God did arise. That's why we're here. Jesus rose from the dead. The enemies of God have been scattered. Death and sin. The psalmist, uh, written by David, says, um, Ask God to, or the the psalm says, extol him or exalt him who rides on the clouds. Is there any story in the New Testament where someone rides on the clouds that these Ephesians might say, hey, that's a little spark, that's a connection? What is it? 
uh, in the New Testament, sorry, any New Testament story. Uh, Revelation, but before we get to Revelation, in terms of the biblical timeline, these are the Ephesians, they've seen the life and ministry of Jesus. What happens at the very end of Jesus' ministry? What? He ascends into heaven. Acts 1.9, after Jesus says these promises to the church, he's taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Other translations will say he was taken up on a cloud. Psalm 68, when God is victorious, we will praise him. We will praise the one who rides on the clouds. Jesus taken up in a cloud. Oh, connection. Okay, I'm seeing what's happening here. Interesting. Let's keep going. Verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 68. As a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Other than the church being the body of Christ, like a literal body through which God ministers to the world, what has been one of the dominant metaphors that Paul has used in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 when describing the church and the relationship of Christians to one another? It starts with an F. Family. One of the dominant metaphors. When God is victorious, says Psalm 68, he will set the lonely in families. And one of the metaphors that the New Testament writers, especially Paul, hammers again and again and again is that you are a new family under the king. You are brothers and sisters. You are adopted sons. And this is your new family through which you are going to receive the love and the care and the grace that you never received maybe from an earthly family. God has set you in a new family for his redemptive purposes. And being a part of a new family is evidence that God has become victorious over his enemies. And then it says, he leads out the prisoners with, with singing, which in terms of an Old Testament story, where does God lead out prisoners with singing? Exodus, the major salvific or uh, saving event of the Old Testament, through which you can't understand anything else that's written after it, is the Exodus, where God literally takes prisoners rescues them and leads them out of Egypt, out of the place of bondage, into the promised land through the wilderness with singing. And so this God is victorious. But Psalm 68 says, when this God is victorious, when this king is victorious, it's not just that he who gets the benefit from being victorious. He will extend benefits to his people. And they will join in his victory with singing. People who were formerly imprisoned will be liberated. They're going to be set free from the tyranny of sin and death and evil. Now, verses 7 to 14 are really just a celebration of God's power in moving his people from Sinai to the promised land. So it's kind of that wilderness journey um, set to poetic language. Then in verse 15 and 16, it says this, Mount Bashan, majestic mountain, Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. Why gaze and envy you, rugged mountain, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell for will dwell forever. Again, most of that is going to be lost on us because we don't understand the geographical context. So let me just uh, share with you very, very briefly um, why you need to understand this and then tuck it away as we move through Psalm 68. Mount Bashan was a mountain range located east of the Sea of Galilee, very fertile place, large mountains. And in many places in the Middle East, they would put um, uh, temples or altars on high mountains as a way to sort of uh, demonstrate the greatness and highness of 
their god. And so there are, were many pagan temples set in the high places, the Old Testament language uses, as a way for um, people with competing views of God to say, oh, look how much higher my God is than your God. Whoever occupies the highest mountain is, has the biggest and most powerful God. And one of those places was Mount Bashan, which in the Near Eastern cultural context was also, in terms of kind of the urban legend of the time, seen as a gateway into Hades, into the underworld. It was a place, it was one of the places from which chaos and evil emerged. The psalmist David is saying, why are you envious, Mount Bashan? You're this high, amazing mountain. Why are you looking at envy at Mount Zion, which isn't really a mountain, it's more like a hilltop in Jerusalem? That's the place of the true and living and most powerful God, but it's not set on a high place. So it's kind of this tease. David is kind of saying, wow, you'd think that the true high and holy God would occupy your place, but yours is a place of evil. This is where God has chosen to reside. Then we get to verse 18, which Paul quotes, when you ascended on high, you took many captives, you received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. So the picture that's being invoked there is a conquering king who's returning to his homeland. And what happened during that time is when a conquering king returned to his home, you would have a procession, a victory procession, a parade. And part of what would happen is as part of that procession, the king would lead, and in the king's train, which some translations have in your Bible, or in the following procession, you would, the king would bring captives, usually other conquered, subjugated kings, uh, over which they now rule. And it was a form of public humiliation, much like when Samson gets his eyes gouged out and he's paraded before people publicly. It was a way in the ancient Near East to say, yeah, remember that king that's a threat to our king? Look at him, naked, broken, utterly subjugated under the power of this king. And Psalm 68 says, when this king, when this God comes to rule, all of the competing kings, he takes a train of captives with him. And for the whole world, this king says, look at how pathetic these guys are. These kings, these princes that you've put your trust in, they've come to nothing. They are now completely subject to my authority. And then in response, people are like, wow, this is like the king. This is like the king of kings. So we're going to give gifts. So what people do as part of the procession, they give gifts to the king as a way of saying, we acknowledge your greatness, we acknowledge your power, we acknowledge your authority, you are the capital K king, and even um, people from the area, other tribes, other uh, serfdoms would still come and say, we're gonna, we're gonna give those treasures too because we don't want the fate, we don't want to suffer the same fate that these um, subjugated kings faced, so we're, we're gonna give gifts. So these processions would build and the gifts would build as the king moves into eventually his own palace. And so that's what we're seeing here in Psalm 68. And then in verse 19 to 23, you have this, which for us is probably a really uncomfortable celebration of God's utter and violent destruction of his enemies. Psalm 19 says, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Okay, that's not too bad yet. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Here's where it gets a little... Uh, a bit more intense. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan. I will bring them from the depths of the sea. I'm going to bring these kings 
from the places that they're actually located in, which is places of darkness and evil, the underworld. That your feet may wade in the blood of your foes, he's speaking to his people, while the tongues of your dogs have their share. So I'm going to bring these kings, they're going to be captives in my train, and the streets are just going to fill with blood. Again, as a demonstration of my utter ruination of these competing forces. Now, that's really graphic stuff. I don't need to tell you that. But be aware that a very common literary device, cultural literary device for Jewish and Hebrew thinkers is hyperbole, hyper-exaggeration to prove a point. We're not to understand it literally. Jesus does this often. One of the most famous ones, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to enter heaven maimed than hell you know, with a full, healthy body. That's hyperbolic. No Christian has ever believed that Jesus is saying, actually cut off your hand or a part of your body if it causes you to sin. It's an exaggeration that is there to shock you into being like, oh wow, this is super serious. So this is a way to say, when God defeats his enemies, what people won't think is, oh, that's like a temporary victory. When God defeats his enemies, it will be total and comprehensive and it will unquestioningly be a capital V victory. Anybody who lives in Bashan is not going to escape the Lord's judgment. God is going to avenge the innocent and utterly smite those who continue in sin or walk in sin, who make sin a lifestyle, a pattern, rebellion against God, living life on their own terms. Now in verses 24 to 35, You have an extended picture of Yahweh coming into his throne in Zion and every nation coming before him, submitting to to his authority from all over the world, saying, you are great, we exalt you, we recognize you are the king of kings. And so in summary, so that's the whole kind of narrative thrust, those are the themes and motifs and ideas that are kind of embedded in Psalm 68. So now think about Ephesians 4, when Paul quotes from Psalm 68, 18, he wants all of those images to be imported into the current discussion around who we are as the church, we're unified in mission, and he's about to get to a diversity of gifts that keep us unified in mission. He wants the entire Psalm 68, which is a praise him celebrating the power of God to save, to be a lens through which they understand what he's writing here. Now, go back to Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10. What is Paul talking about when he references the one who descends and ascends? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus descended. He's saying, what does the ascended mean except first that he descended? So Jesus was in the heavenly realm. He was God. Then he descended in his incarnation died, then he ascended, kind of part A was the resurrection, but then he actually ascended 40 days later and now has been installed by the Father as Lord over all things, Lord of heaven and earth. That's a biblical way of saying Lord of the cosmos. So, just understanding what verses 8 to 10 are saying, who it's in reference to, Jesus, but what Psalm 68 is about what would you be able to say definitively? Who would you be able to say Jesus is definitively? Jesus is who? God. 
Where in, the, where in the Bible does Jesus say, I am God, or does the Bible say Jesus was God? All over, but it does so in a very sophisticated, significant way. It's not just Jesus going around and saying, I am God. He does things that only God is allowed to do, I forgive sins. And then when people talk about Jesus and what has been accomplished through his death and resurrection, they reference passages that talk about God coming in victory and then they make the obvious connection that you can insert Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God, or Jesus. Those are, those are synonymous. When we read Psalm 68, it's a psalm about Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here is that I want you to understand that what has happened here, Jesus descending and ascending, Jesus is the God of Psalm 68, who has come and conquered the enemies of God. Jesus has ascended victorious over the great enemies of God, sin and death, and now he is installed as the king of kings and the nations will come to him and will submit to his authority and rule. And so we're supposed to import all the themes of God's universal power and authority, the nation's submission, God's kingship over the whole earth, God's power to save, um, all of those things we're supposed to now understand, oh, that's one way of looking at what has happened in and through Jesus. But we're also supposed to do that with a twist. Because did you notice that when Paul quotes from Psalm 68, 18, he doesn't quote the psalm exactly? Did anyone notice that? Here is the psalm. And then we'll put up Ephesians 4 so you can compare it. Psalm 68, 18 says, When you ascended on high, it's the psalmist talking to God, you took many captives and you received gifts from people. When Paul quotes that psalm in Ephesians 4, he says, When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. Now, this has been used as a way to say, yeah, this is an example of why the Bible isn't authoritative because there's a mistake. Paul actually mistakenly quotes. So we can't talk about the Bible being perfect or inerrant or any of those things. And again, that's a superficial misunderstanding of what's happening in the text because you don't understand how to read Paul as a Jewish thinker. What Paul is doing is he's doing a remix. He's saying Psalm 68 is absolutely about Jesus, but not quite the way God's people thought. See, God's people thought the king was going to come and God was going to be victorious and God was going to smite his enemies and there was going to be blood in the streets. That's why they were looking for a conquering, militaristic Messiah. And Paul says, when God came, he fulfilled Psalm 68, but in a subversive, new, interesting way. So we need to read Psalm 68 in light of what has happened through the life, death, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but we then, in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, need to amend Psalm 68 a little bit. Because now that God's will has been fully revealed in Jesus, it changes how we read the Old Testament. Paul didn't make a mistake. He said Psalm 68 points to the king who is coming to deal with the enemies of God, but in an even more amazing way than we could have anticipated had we only known Psalm 68. 
This victorious king is not a king who through his victory is going to plunder the nations around him. He's going to plunder his people. That's right, I'm in charge. I protected you, now pony up. Give me your gifts. This conquering king leads a procession where he gives gifts, right? You've been to those parades, Santa Claus parade, different parades where the people in the floats are throwing candy out or stuff like that. That's a picture that you have here. This king changes the script of what a victorious king looks like. Not a king who takes from his people, but who gives gifts. Jesus is the king of kings who has power to reign and rule over the nations, who has every right to claim as his own all good gifts in heaven and on earth. But what does this good king do? What does he do? He gives gifts. What is the gift that Jesus gives? Salvation, yes. But there's an actual thing that he talks about as being a gift that he's going to give, the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, verses 4 to 5, on one occasion while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to the people of God so that they can celebrate and enjoy and be part of the victory procession of the true king and the world's true king and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But then the Holy Spirit, as part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and part of this Godhead that is giving in its nature, the Holy Spirit is a gift that is given to us, but what does the Holy Spirit give us? Gives us sub-gifts. Paul's going to get to that, and then he's going to talk about it again in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. We'll get to those in the next few weeks. What are the gifts? But this gift gives more gifts to individuals within the church so that the church can be strengthened and participate in the victory, victorious procession of God. Now the reason why all of this is really, really important, and the reason why I'm staying in this little section of Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, for as long as I am, is because the next passage is going to lead in, necessarily, to a big discussion about spiritual gifts. What are the gifts? How many are there? How do we get them? Can we lose them? Do certain gifts entitle people, entitle those people to certain positions of authority within the church? Are all the gifts active, only some of them still active? And if not all of them, which ones are still active? Do they come and go in terms of church history or in terms of time or cultures? Um, How do I identify the gifts in my life? So there's all kinds of discussions around a theology of spiritual gifts that we will get into. But Paul first, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to ground our theology of the gifts in Psalm 68 to understand that Jesus is the victorious king who has given gifts to his people so that they can be gifts to each other. And often what happens in the church is we jump into the minutia of, okay, what are the spiritual gifts? And we do inventories and online tests and uh, we, every church kind of has a hierarchy, even though the Bible says there's no hierarchy. We all kind of know like certain gifts are more preferred and they give you different access to opportunities of leadership and influence within the church and we want those gifts and we go to schools to get certain gifts and we uh, clamor and read and, and we have all these discussions. But there's, there's kind of like a spiritual gift Christian subculture that you can be a part of and miss the entire point of spiritual gifts, which is that they're given by God 
to advance his agenda, not yours. There are many Christians who seek to understand what their spiritual gift is because their fundamental assumption is God is giving me a gift so that my life is better. Or maybe even more crassly, I'm happier or my life goes well for me. And Paul wants us to understand the gifts Christocentrically with Jesus at the center. The gifts are given ultimately for you to bring glory to Jesus. And the way you're going to do that is by being a gift to other people. You can practice spiritual gifts but not be received as a genuine gift to other people. How many people have experienced people who are strong on spiritual gifts, but they don't actually, like you don't receive them as, they aren't a gift to the church. I was like that for much of my life. I wanted certain gifts. I was trying to push an agenda. And I missed the whole point, which was, I wasn't asking myself the most important question, which is, if I've been graced with the Holy Spirit, how can I simply be a gift to this church? How can I be a gift? Everyone can answer that. Everyone can answer that right now. You don't even need to know. You don't have to do any inventories. You don't have to. You just need to know. I'm part of this story where this conquering king, this great gift giver, right? It all starts with God the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave, and He gives Jesus for us. And Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts that we're to give to each other for the strengthening and building up of the church. That's why we've been gifted. Ephesians four twelve to thirteen to equip the church for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach reach unity in the faith and, and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Our primary concern when we talk about spiritual gifts is not to spend a huge amount of time identifying them and parsing them out and coming up with really tight definitions of what each are and what they aren't. The overall thrust of Ephesians 4 and then 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 is you've been given the Holy Spirit so that you can just be a gift to the church that you're a part of. So just go be a gift. Go be a source of blessing. Try lots of different things. Use who you are. You've been shaped by God in a unique way. Again, the church, the first century church didn't have spiritualgifttest.com that they could, they just had to be a gift to each other. And then over time, people said, I think that person has the gift of hospitality. I think that person, but they didn't, you know what I mean? Like they just were focused on being a gift to each other. So my question this morning is how can you be a gift to others within this church? How can you be a gift to others within your small group or your 3-2-1 group? How can you be a gift to other people as it relates to Sunday school? How can you be a gift to the children of our church? How can you be a gift to others within this church through our visitation team or through our worship team? How can you be a gift to our church through, by bringing artistic talents to bear and beautifying our church? Right, look, look at this beautiful painting that Miriam's done. She's gonna talk about some of the themes of that. I said, Miriam, would you do a piece of art that speaks to these themes that we've been working through in Ephesians? Dennis is going to be bringing in a picture this week and we're going to be hanging it. Same thing. We have artists in our community and they're not professional artists. You don't just be a gift to people but only if you can be like a capital G, the perfect gift all the time, perfect singer, perfect artist, perfect small group leader, perfect. No, no, no. We can all be a gift to someone. I would love to have people, especially artists, challenge themselves to think on a passage, to respond with a piece of art, 
and for this church to be filled up with visual testimonies of people who are saying, I want to use my gift to bless and serve, not just people who come on here on Sunday, but anybody who comes into this church during the week. How can it be a gift of beautifying the church? Uh, uh, Judith is going to be asking a few people if they want to help decorate the interior of this space in preparation for Thanksgiving. You can be a gift to our church by bringing beautification into this space. How do you just be a gift to other people within this church on a Sunday morning with your time, with your attention, taking a few minutes after the service to listen, to pray with someone, to set up a coffee conversation? How can you be a gift to other people in this church? That's an important question because we've all been gifted in order to be a gift. And so that question comes to the forefront in terms of what it means to move together in unity through a diversity of gifts. How can we be gifts to one another? Okay, in closing, I want to go back to Psalm 68 one last time because in altering verse 18, uh, I'm going to take gospel artistic license and do what Paul does which is to say, Psalm 68 is true, but in Jesus, it's even more true and beautiful. This king doesn't just respond by taking gifts, he gives them. And I want to read a section of this. I'm going to put the actual section of Psalm 18, 68 on the screen, but I'm going to read uh, what I consider to be a gospel revision or a remix, if you will, of how we're to understand this. When Jesus ascended on high, he took death captive and he gave gifts to his people, even gifts to the rebellious, that he, the Lord, might dwell within them. Praise be to the Lord, the God, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves, and from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely, God will defeat the great enemies, sin and death, while saving the enemies, people. And he'll save them by bearing a crown of thorns for their sins. And so the Lord declares, I will bring them from the underworld. I will bring them and rescue them from the depths of the sea, from the places of chaos, from the lost places, and I will save and redeem through blood, but it will be my blood shed on their behalf. Let's pray. God, this morning, we acknowledge you as our king. And maybe this passage gives us new insight, different ways to understand, different dimensions through which we can consider the gospel, consider your greatness, God, may we be a people who are faithful to this calling to be gifts to one another. That we are receiving the gifts that you have for us, not to fulfill our own agenda, but to fulfill yours. God, make us faithful to that vision. We acknowledge that you are the king. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for all the gifts that we acknowledge and give you thanks for and for those for whom our blindness or stubbornness or just self-centeredness we just fail to even see, God. We give you thanks for all the ways that you bless and shepherd us into new life. We love you, God, and we proclaim that you reign. May our lives increasingly conform to lives that worshipfully exalt you. Amen.